Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 3. And I love this. I, I love this rhythm that we've, that's been developed here. Uh, so out of reverence for this word, out of our conviction that this is not just a book that we come to, but is in fact the very word of God, would you, would you rise as I read James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Father, we come to you utterly dependent on your spirit to impart sight and faith in our souls to behold the wondrous things of this word. As Greg said earlier, flesh and blood are of no help of all. This is your spirit must work. Where else would we go? For you have the words of eternal life. So would you give us life this morning, we ask. In your son, in your son's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> April 19, 1775, the day the shot heard around the world rang out in Lexington and Concord, and from then on out, the world turned upside down. The American War for Independence was officially on. With these shots, a young, angsty upstart eager to restore his family's ruined reputation, a man by the name of Benedict Arnold, set out to join the Continental Army. Arnold quickly rose to prominence for his courage, his veracity, his inspirational effect that he had on his men. He would go on to lead famous successful raids such as the raid on Fort Ticonderoga, stalled British forces at Lake Champlain, and served with distinction in New York City. Despite his successes, Benedict Arnold became frustrated with his perceived lack of recognition for all of his many successes until he was finally promoted to Major General in 1777. It was that same year in the famous Battle of Saratoga that Arnold, despite his brave leadership and his fighting, received a career-ending wound to his leg. Arnold was sidelined, forced to play politics in the tumultuous town of Philadelphia, and feeling the wound to his pride as much as to his leg, he began to mix with the Tory sympathizers of Philadelphia aristocracy. And in 1780, he did the unthinkable. Major General Benedict Arnold defected to serve with the British Army, forever to be known by history as the traitor Benedict Arnold. Shortly after leaving 
learning about the betrayal of one of his most trusted and distinguished generals, the despondent George Washington is quoted as asking this, whom can we trust now? Before we begin the how could he's and the I would never's, it's worth pondering the reality that the very same weeds that grew in the heart of Benedict Arnold, leading him to betray not only his friends, but his nation, are often appear in our own hearts. And as our author today would put it, Benedict Arnold's desire of fame and recognition gave birth to the sins of jealousy and vainglory, leading ultimately to his treachery. And it's this type of bitterness and vainglory and vain ambition being warned about in our passage today. Benedict Arnold almost derailed a revolution. These same seeds in our hearts can derail our spiritual lives, and it can derail a church, the very body of Christ. There are massive things at stake here. But today, the Lord has graciously given us a text these, to recognize these weeds and pull them up, clearing the ground and keeping these weeds from growing. If we heed these warnings from this text, our church and our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ might be preserved and strengthened in a society looking at every turn to divide us. So throughout this letter, James is seeking to identify and make clear to his Christian audience that how we live and our daily conduct reveals what we really do believe. And what we believe is intended to have an effect in how we live. The two are intrinsically related. James is telling Orthodox Christians, people who grew up in the church, check out your life, and that will tell you what you truly believe. And I believe that it is in this passage in chapter 3 that James means to communicate this. Godly wisdom produces a life marked by humility and peace. Godly wisdom, godly wisdom, produces a life marked by humility and peace. Before we dive into this text, there are a few points to consider regarding the letter itself that will help us understand the author and his audience. The book of James was, writ- was most likely written by James, not James the brother of John, one of the twelve and belonging to Jesus' inner circle, but James the half-brother of Jesus. This James rose to prominence prominence by leading the Christian church in Jerusalem after Pentecost. We see this James leading the famous council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. With all the apostles, including Peter and Paul and the rest, showing deference to him as the leader of the council. And it is this James, because of his leadership in the church of Jerusalem, which has always been the home of the Jewish people, that becomes the leader of the Jewish wing of early Christianity. So while the book contains some of the hallmarks of a traditional Greek letter, this letter does not read quite like Paul. (laughs) James is typically categorized in the general epistles because of not containing a particular audience or occasion. James is not written to the church in Antioch, but is written, chapter 1, verse 1, to the 12 tribes in dispersion. Likely this is a general letter being sent out and meant to be read by all the Jewish Christians living in the dispersion or scattered throughout the Roman Empire. James 
is a pastor. And due to his heritage and his context, James is seeking to pastor Jewish Christians. Not the worldly Greek pagans living out in the Roman frontier, but people who, as it were, grew up in the church. And it is this influence and aim that informs and permeates how he both diagnoses problems and offers solutions. Because we're so familiar with Paul and his pioneering evangelism out into the Gentile and pagan world, we can often forget that Christianity began in a very Jewish context. And as the gospel, which is good news for not only the Gentiles, but for the Jews first, permeated its way out of Jerusalem after the death of Christ and his ascension, we see in Acts 1.8, it's easy to forget that somebody had to stay behind to lead the church in Jerusalem. And that man appears to have been James. Now this book might not traditionally be the first one that pops into your mind when you're seeking straight, unvarnished, Christ died for your sins gospel. But as you read the letter, the aroma of the gospel's influence on the life of James is evident throughout. Like a tea bag in hot water, the gospel has permeated his life and has caused him to see everything in his Jewish upbringing through a gospel lens. And as a good pastor, he wants to see that same gospel function in the lives of the Jewish Christians he's preaching to and in our lives today. So as we mine this passage, we're going to see two ways, two sources of wisdom that should influence our conduct. Wisdom from below and wisdom from above. First, wisdom from below. James interrupts his flow of thought on the power of the tongue in chapter 3 with a ponderous rhetorical question. He steps back and asks, who is wise and understanding among you? Just prior to this section, James had addressed his audience, warning them to beware of the power of the tongue, of their speech. He begins that section in chapter 3, verse 1, by making this provocative statement. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. While this is addressed probably to the general congregation, it seems James has in mind the leaders of the church as he issues these warnings. James is warning his readers of the weightiness and the seriousness of the responsibilities of teachers, to be a learned sage, to be somebody that people come to for answers to the hard questions in life. And it's with this arresting question in chapter 3.13 that James is calling out all those who just a few paragraphs before heard the warning regarding teachers and said, Oh yeah, that's not me. <laughs> I have nothing to fear. I know who you're talking about, James, but I'm not one of them. I am definitely qualified to be a teacher due to my genuine wisdom and my genuine understanding. And James says to them, you think so? <laughs> you say that you are wise and understanding, that you need not heed the warnings that I ask, that I give you. But let me ask you this, James 3, 13, B. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So those who step forward to the questioning of who is wise and understanding find themselves being examined. Not by their knowledge, not by their intellect or their ability to define key theological terms, but by the conduct of their lives. 
and the meekness of wisdom. It's not enough, James says, to simply do good works or to say good things, but these works and these words must be born out of a discernible humility. And that word good in verse 13, that word good in the original language can mean simply doing right or wrong, but here it carries more of a sense of attractive, noble, praiseworthy actions that show the true character of the one doing them. For those claiming to be wise, are they marked by the evidence of humility? If not, they should question their claim to the wisdom and understanding. An examination is needed. An examination of the secret life and the unseen motives of those claiming to be wise. Where do their motivations spring from? What is the source of their so-called wisdom? The two key elements that James is looking to hunt out are one, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James mentions them together twice, both in verse 14 and in verse 16, using the same words in the original language. He repeats them because those two things, they have a peculiar power to destroy relationships and divide us from one another. He is aware that there is a tendency in every human heart, but especially among those in positions of leadership, to maneuver, to position oneself in a way that elevates one's position and status and maintains a certain image. We want to be seen to be knowledgeable and understanding, and we are willing to say and do anything to protect that image. And when someone may impede on our opportunity, our reaction is to and inclination is to wonder, why are they being recognized and not me? Which, of course, then leads to jealousy. The examples of this in daily life are too numerous to list exhaustively. But think of your time, think of a time in your life that you wanted something you felt you deserved. Whether that's a job, a job promotion, simply wanting to be recognized by the amazing service you did for that person, or, and to see yourself passed over, the opportunity going to somebody else, or even the recognition and praise going to somebody else. That feeling, that heat that we feel rising in our hearts, that's what James is putting his finger on. Notice, James doesn't just call it jealousy, but bitter jealousy. This is jealousy that quickly turns into bitterness, resentment, and eventually division. James refers to these two vices again in verse 16 when he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. My friends, we cannot sweep bitterness and jealousy and selfish ambition under the rug. These things cannot stay hidden. Against our best efforts, these will come out of our fingertips and affect all of those around us in discernible ways. There will be disorder, and if not dealt with, it will only lead to more and more vile practices. Recall James's diagnosis in chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, where he says, But every person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And if selfish ambition and jealousy are present. James says back in chapter 3, 14, that we may profess truth, but in fact our conduct proves us to be false. Humility 
is needed. So considering the context of this section, a chief indicator of the fruit of this wisdom is our speech. Oh, how easy it is to criticize. Whether that's people that we think are wrong, people in our church that take a different stance on X, or the direction our leaders are taking with, that we disagree with, or our lack of our leaders speaking out about X topic, we may be able to convince ourselves that our displaying of our godliness in a world or our courageous stance on a topic, but our boasting of the truth and our willingness to fight for it by any means necessary, even if it leads to wounds and division, is actually showing the depravity of our so-called wisdom. Our claim to truth may be accurate, but it's anything but humble. Commentator Alec Matier says this in regard to the destructive effects these vices can have in the life of the church. He says this, Over and over again, the formation of a party, the growth of a clique, the promotion of a split have been justified as standing for the truth. It is said that unless we divide, the truth cannot be safeguarded. The body from which we are dividing has rejected all truth, or this truth, or that. But when Paul withstood Peter to the face over the really cardinal issue of the truth of the gospel, he did not separate, form a party, send word to the churches he had founded that they were now a new denomination. The sad thing is that we who are born into a divided, wretchedly denominal situation are inured from birth to separation. And we have lost James's realization that in Christian division, as in time of war, truth is the first casualty. Although Matier was writing and commenting on the status of the church decades ago, one glance at Twitter <laughs> will show us that all the examples we need to see this alive and well in our own day, masks, critical race theory, feminism, the patriarchy, elections, vaccines, we could go on and on seems the ammunition to divide Christians is endless and in abundance all around us. Oh, how needed is the rebuke from James to all of those on Twitter. Who is wise and understanding among all of you? By your good conduct, not by your Twitter feed and your hot takes. Let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. Now, to be clear, James does not call us to shrink from the truth of God's word. Just like Paul didn't shrink from confronting Peter in Galatians 1. But here he is saying to us that while we speak the truth, the real truth, what is our motive? Are we seeking to declare truth out of a righteous zeal for the glory of God? Or are we seeking to pounce on those who we disagree with in order to gain points in our culture wars? James has a sobering warning for those who, while claiming to be wise, show their colors through their tweets and their conduct. He pulls back the veil and he shows us the source of our so-called wisdom. Verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. There is no neutral ground. All wisdom comes from somewhere. And the source of, our, of this earthly wisdom, of a life characterized by strong talk, but motivated by bitterness, jealousy, selfish ambition, is not only ungodly, look what he says. It's in fact demonic. 
What a startling thought. For all of our attempts at godliness and righteous living, James is pushing through our external bravado and drilling down into our hearts, into our motivations and saying, you may sound godly, but that blackness in your heart that is not uniting the brothers around the gospel of Christ, but is in fact causing division, that's not from my spirit. In fact, it's actually demonic. What a sobering and arresting thought. If our wisdom produces division and is bred in bitterness and selfishness, we are not operating out of the spirit of God. Remember, James is addressing Christians. So he's saying to them and to us, examine your souls. And this is especially true for leaders in the church, the shepherds of the flock of God, because they have the most potential to lead others and our churches in all ways of vileness and marked by division, bitterness, and selfishness. This should drive us to examine our souls and self-reflection. We need to ask God, as the psalmist says in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And if there's any grievousness way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. And this should drive us to community. We need others to, to detect and address these things in us. Thank God for the local church, for people who love us and know us, and that can serve as a means of by which we can examine our hearts and see where change needs to happen. So, James calls us to hold no quarter for worldly wisdom. But what does a life of godly wisdom look like? Let's look at the other source he mentions. Number two, wisdom from above. There is a clear turn in James's logic in verse 17. As he turns away from the wisdom from below that's marked by disorder and turns to an altogether different wisdom. James 3:17. But the wisdom from above is first first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. In contrast to worldly, earthly wisdom, James describes wisdom from God, not so much by what it is, by what it does. This wisdom does not produce division, chaos, bitterness, etc., but produces peace and unity. This is the type of wisdom that is attractive to those around it, not causing jealousy of one's knowledge or insight, but by its noble, praiseworthy, attractive conduct. Or as in 3.13 says, it is good conduct that is marked by humility and meekness. The list that James gives there in verse 17, it reminds us of the famous fruits of the Spirit that Paul writes about in Galatians 5. These are James's fruits of wisdom. And keeping in mind his Jewish audience, there is a connection between wisdom and godliness. For Jews, wisdom was not primarily knowledge or a certain philosophy like the Greek thought of the time, but was righteous living, the actual personification of God himself. Wisdom is a life of godliness. So, in the list, James sets forth in priority the characteristic of purity, to highlight not only the genuineness of the motivations to follow, but the purity and holiness of the source of this wisdom, God himself. True wisdom 
is focused on God and resides in those devoted to God. If our hearts are not aimed at the glory and honor of our Lord, then we haven't even begun to know wisdom. He then lists three qualities, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Uh, Another translation translates them, peace-loving, considerate, submissive. Here we see the open-heartedness of the wise man. He is peaceable in his conduct and speech. Not interacting harshly with others online or in the church in order to score points, but aware of how his speech and his conduct affects those around him. He is gentle in his coming alongside others, putting an arm of encouragement around them and saying, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. This wise man is also open to reason in displaying humility in his opinions that we like to hold with an iron fist. Humility is submitting all of our lives and all of our opinions to the word of God, brought to us by others, recognizing that sin often blinds me to the truth. That's why I'm open to reason from the word of God. These three attitudes are listed in direct opposition to the, self, to the worldly wisdom of jealousy, selfish ambition listed in verse 14. While those are attitudes, next come discernible actions, mercy, and good fruit. That should be evident to all those around the wise man. One author comments on this couplet with this. James provides his own definition of mercy, love for the neighbor that shows itself in action. It's not surprising then that James couples mercy so closely with good fruit. Acts of mercy are those fruits that genuine wisdom, like genuine faith, must produce. Finally, James rounds out his fruits with two judgments, impartial and sincere. Impartial meaning he is steady, not swinging with the winds of the zeitgeist, but balanced on the ballast of God's word. And sincere, not putting on a show to be somebody he's not, but filled with conviction. The wise man is someone who is genuine in his pursuit of unity, while at the same time unyielding in his pursuit of truth. R. Kent Hughes says this, Those full of wisdom from above, they never play act. What you see is what you get. No masks, no feigned sincerity, no pretense. How refreshing this is in a world full of offstage actors who believe a little hypocrisy is part of the essential wisdom of life. Christian wisdom demands and demonstrates the sincerity of Christ. In sum, here is the wise man. He is devoted to God. He is devoted to unity. He is devoted to humility. He is devoted to grace. He's devoted to godliness. He is devoted to truth. This godly wisdom, this was exemplified by the author himself in Acts and his conduct in Acts 15. At a critical juncture in redemptive history, the crisis of what to do with the Gentiles, where tensions were high, where the two sides, passionate characters like Peter and Paul on one side and the infamous Judaizers on the other, where they were dug in, where the stakes are tremendously high for the direction of the growth of the newly planted churches all over the empire, James the pastor stood over the council seeking to preserve unity in Christ above all things, but also find a solution that was pleasing to the Lord. 
where division and disunity could have raged, James sought unity and truth. That same attitude is what permeates this passage. This section on wisdom ends with almost a proverbial statement, verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This strange, almost awkward proverb is placed at the end as a capstone to hammer home James's point that the life of the Christian is to be marked by humility and peace. And when seeds are sown in that season and in that attitude, they will produce righteousness. Another translation renders this passage this way. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. We reap what we sow. Who we are, what we believe, and our motivations are intimately tied to what we do. Gospel truth informs gospel conduct. You cannot sow in anger and expect a harvest of good works and godly living. Only when we address our attitudes and the stirrings of our souls can we expect to see the fruits of godly conduct. Now after that examination of your heart, you may be asking, how do I get this wisdom? How do I lay hold of this wisdom? Ultimately, without being explicitly stated, what's underneath all of this wisdom from above is the reality that it is a gift. This wisdom is not wisdom from within, but wisdom from above. The source of this wisdom is outside of us. We cannot generate this type of living that James describes here without receiving it from outside of us. So how do we lay hold of it? We find the answer in the only other place James mentions wisdom in his letter. Chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. What a promise. It will be given to him. The very, and notice, the very posture of asking God requires humility, the very thing that marks true wisdom. And this is not, my friends, this is not because of anything in us, but only because there was one who came down from heaven, became one of us, humbled himself all the way to death, yes, even death on a cross, in order that he might bring us to God, and that we might have peace with God. During his life, Christ exhibited to the world the supreme and perfect example of true wisdom from above. Christ was devoted to the Father, seeking to glorify him above all. Christ was devoted to unity, praying in John 17, 21, that those he came for would be one as he and the Father are one. Christ was devoted to humility as he laid his life down willingly to die for those who hated him. Christ was devoted to grace. Christ was devoted to godliness. Christ was devoted to truth. And as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, or 1.30, Christ became to us wisdom from God, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And above all, through the death and resurrection of Christ, we have access to this wisdom on high. 
Because of the cross, we have a wise and good and humble and peaceable representative before God the Father. What gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. We can have this harvest of righteousness because Christ has secured a peace for us between us and God the Father. So my friends, dear friends, rest in the finished work of Christ. Examine your hearts for the weeds of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and humbly seek the wisdom on high and see the fruits of wisdom permeate your life and the life of those around you. Let's pray. Father, quickly after examining our hearts, we see the need for your grace. We see the need for your spirit to work in us. And we immediately turn to Christ and say, give us wisdom that you have secured. Father, would you work in our souls? Would you work in our hearts? Would you impart this faith through your spirit by the death of Jesus so that we can have this wisdom, that we can have this peace and humility, not for our own sake, but to display to the world and to those around us. We need you, Father. We need your work in our lives. So would you give us this grace? Give us this faith, we ask. And above all, let you be glorified through our lives and through your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.